0: Okay, last week we uh, talked a lot about the idea of Christ being preeminent. And we talked about uh, that each paragraph, each chapter, each page is a different thing about Christ. A different kind of expose on who Christ was or what he means. And tonight, or tonight, uh, this morning, we're going to really focus on... Reconciliation. We'll get to that in about 10 minutes. Uh, What it means to be reconciled. And then we'll conclude by talking about service in the name of Christ. So let's jump right into the text and let's look at verses 13 through 18. And I want to actually go back and pick up verse 12 because as we were closing last week, we looked at verses 12 and 13 together. But verse 12 says, Giving thanks to the Father... Who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints and the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions. For principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body and the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. And that's one of the last things we talked about last week. David Creech made a comment about what it means and what it does not mean to be preeminent. And we may come back and talk about that here in just a second or two. But let's first of all... Jump into the text, and one of the first things that jumped out to me as I was studying this this week is the prevalence of the words he and his. I didn't count them, but I thought it was interesting that he and his is used repeatedly. That's not a surprise, given the nature of what we've talked about with the church at Colossae. It's all about Jesus the Christ. It's all about him. Then he says in the New King James Version, uh, he uses the word conveyed. Uh, The word transferred is what the New American Standard uses and some of the other more uh, modern versions. So it says that he has transferred us into the kingdom of the son of his love. Isn't that a beautiful thought that we were in darkness under the power of darkness but we've now been conveyed or transferred into something that is better, something that is superior, something that is light, something that is great. And that result of the transfer, if you kind of outline that text, the result of that transfer or of that conveying, moving from one place to another, is twofold. What are the two things that he says are the result of that transfer? In whom we have what? Redemption. Redemption. What does redemption mean? What does it mean to redeem something? To buy it back? To to get something back? Um, Yeah, David? Also the idea of a, a ransom. Right. So we know that the idea of ransom is a very New Testament idea where Jesus paid... The ransom. Jesus is the one who says, I'm going to redeem them. I'm going to make it so that they can be transferred. Without Jesus, without Christ, there's no such thing as a transfer from the left to the right, from one to the other, from darkness into light. And what's the second thing that is the result of the transfer? Redemption. And then similarly, yeah, I heard someone say it, forgiveness there. So in whom we have redemption, Which comes through his blood and the forgiveness of sins. Now, we look at those two things and we say that they are one and the same. And and for all intents, you know, for all purposes, it really kind of is the same idea. But yet they're strikingly uh, different words that we need to appreciate. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean when someone forgives a debt? Remember no more. Remember no more, right? Right. So if you owe me $100 and I say, you know what, don't worry about it. I'm forgiving the debt. And then three weeks later I come to you and say, hey, when are you going to pay me the $100 back? Uh, That's not real forgiveness, right? And the same is true when we forgive one another. We are to say, you know what, that's something that's in the past. And we know that in the New Testament, he remembers our sins no more. Uh, What a wonderful idea there. And then the last thing here on this first slide is I want to talk about verse 15 for a second where it says, he is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? That he's the image of the invisible God. Emmanuel. Emmanuel, I love that, right? Matthew chapter 1, that he is God with us. That's a wonderful way of putting it. What else do we mean when we say image? I put it there, image. Yeah, Brother John here. I asked the question, what is image? Without a question mark, I see that now.
1: It exhibits all the attributes of
0: God. The attributes of God being exhibited. Very good. So I have a friend with whom, uh, who preaches, uh, and he's my age. In fact, I graduated high school with him. Um, he's smarter than me uh, which doesn't take much he graduated ahead of me a little bit um, but he came up with this he said image is the idea of imagining man as God envisions I wish I could have thought of that but that's why he graduated ahead of me right? but imagine man as God envisions think of about an image. And I thought, was oh, kind of catchy. I'm going to remember that. So, and some of you writing it down, that's fine. But uh, he came up with that. But I like the idea of attributes. The attributes of God as seen in God with us, Emmanuel. That's what Jesus was and that's what Jesus is. That's what he continues to be for us, that image. Anything on the first three verses of our study before we go on to verse 16 in our text? All right, uh, Brother John. Yes, here, David. Uh, and then we'll go to verse 16 here.
1: There are those who say that it teaches that Jesus Christ was just a man, nothing more, nothing less. And they'll look at this verse and say firstborn. So he was just the first being created. Mm-hmm. But Of course, that's not the way that word is used. Correct. It's his uh, preeminence. It's used again that in verse 18 says he's firstborn from the dead, but he wasn't the first one to be raised from the dead. You know, he
0: raised Lazarus, there were others. So it's that's just, not the way that word is used. That's a really good observation. So trick question, if someone does ask us, uh, when was Jesus created? It's kind of it's an impossible. You can't answer it that way, right? Because he wasn't created, right? So he is an eternal being. It's the same thing as when, when was the father created? He wasn't. He's just always been. Now, is that mind-blowing to us? It is, right? We can't figure that thing out because eternity is that spectacular. But he is eternal. There's a difference between eternal and immortal. And the difference is, is eternal is there's no beginning and no end. Immortal is what we will be in the sense that we had a beginning, you go back and look at your birth year, and then you transfer, you you move that out to immortality, where we live forever. But we we are, but we are not eternal. We don't have that component built into us. We do have immortality built into us. But um, okay, let's go ahead, verse sixteen, where it says, "For by him, what's the next two words?" All things, that's different than some things, right? All things were created, it says, that are in earth, are in heaven, that are on earth, things that you can see and things that are invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, powers, and then again he says in the latter part of verse 16, all things were created through him and created for him. So going back to the question that I asked a few moments ago about Jesus being eternal versus Jesus being created, how would you go about, and if you want to answer it, great. If you just want to ponder it and think about it this week, that's fine as well. But how would you go about the process of explaining to someone uh, Jesus' presence at the beginning? Because that's kind of a tough things sometimes, to, because most of the time, we get to, and David has a comment here on that, but a lot of times we think about Jesus as being in existence from the time in which Luke 2 rolls around until forever. Well, that would make him immortal, not
2: eternal, and there's a difference. Uh, Brother David. I was just going to say John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made through him. That's where I would start, I think. Yeah,
0: I think that's a great way. Brother Tirado over here, David over here. Um, John 1 is an excellent passage. and kind of We talked about John 6 last week, or last week, or the week before, but John 1 would work very well.
2: I think from the beginning, every book uh, reflects
0: Jesus in nature. Even from Genesis, uh, you know, man was built in our image, so it talks Absolutely. about uh, different things, even from the start. Genesis one, verse 26, right? That's a great passage to use. I'm gonna write that down in my notes here, so. Uh, very good. Leland, I think about, um, Brother Jason.
1: First Peter one, where it talks about he was foreknown before the foundation of the earth. And
0: it
2: also touches on the idea of mm-hmm. uh, that redemption in that same passage. So, Absolutely. Not only was he there and in existence um, but this plan was in existence before the earth was even created. absolutely,
0: so jesus he, and and for those of you didn 't hear he was referencing first Peter chapter one, Jesus is not a mistake. the church is not a substitution um, some and and going back to the point that that John made a few moments ago when people look at this and say well this proves this proves that Jesus was just a human being. Some would suggest that the church is a substitute for what Jesus came to do and he failed in his mission or that Jesus failed in his mission in an elementary way. That wasn't the case at all. This was before the foundation of the world and goes back to the very beginning. Uh, so I think that's very important that we understand that we don't allow anyone to accuse us of being the mistake.
1: Philippians 2, we just studied a few weeks ago, talked about him being equal with God. hmm also, in I think it's John 17 verse five, he was praying to the Father. He said, "Glorify me with the glory I had
0: with you before the world was." Yep, and that is John 17 five. Very good. Okay, verse seventeen, which we read, uh, I like the NIV a little bit better, where it says, "He is before all things, and in Him all things consist." The NIV, if you happen to have uh, that open on your app, or you're you're just from, you're, you're reading from an NIV, says all things hold together. So it's like Jesus is the glue that holds the whole world together, and holds the Bible together, and holds us together. What a what a kind of a neat concept that Jesus holds us together. Um, when it says He is, verse eighteen. Uh, What is the article? He is the head. Well, we know that unless it's a monster, something only has one head, right? So uh, we need to appreciate that there's no other head. And we know that from passages like Ephesians 4, verse 4, verse 5, that the body is the church. And we know that there is one of those things and then the New American Standard says he has first place in everything. So Jesus is never second place. He's always first place. It's up to us to make sure that he's first place in our lives as well. Anything else on the first uh, 13, verses 13 through 18? Because I want us to go ahead and uh, move a little bit to verses 19 through 23. We got a lot of a lot of stuff to cover. And as someone said a week or so ago, when it comes to Philippians or Colossians, you know, we're spending five weeks studying Colossians. We could easily spend twice that studying Colossians, if not more. Uh, okay, let's go ahead to verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him... Whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister a lot of stuff in there we could spend the rest of the period just in those five verses uh, but five or six verses here but let's i thought i, I like the phrase it pleased the father um, sometimes uh we think in terms of sermon titles or class titles or article titles Consider the things that please the Father. Things that please the Father. And make a list of things. You know, there's a lot of things that please the Father. But one of the things that is specifically mentioned is what? What, what made God pleased? According to this passage. That not some of the fullness should dwell... All of the fullness should dwell in Jesus the Christ. Notice that authority was given to Jesus was indeed given. Going back to Matthew twenty-eight, where Jesus says, "All authority has been given to me, both on heaven and on earth." It's a similar kind of statement. Jesus did not take the authority away. There wasn't a struggle in heaven. It was God saying to the God the Father saying to the Son, "I'm giving you this authority." Um, what about the word in verse 20 that we, we use a fair amount of time, although I think we use it less now than we did maybe 30 years ago because of technology, and I'll get to that in just a minute. But what, is it, what does it mean to reconcile? Yeah, David?
2: Well, different from what you just threw up there, I was going to say um, to, to balance or to harmonize. To balance or to harmonize,
0: Yes. Uh, by, I looked up the definition in, in one way or another. To win over to friendliness. Now, usually when we use it, we use it in the idea of balancing or settling. Now, this will, this will be very um, foreign to anybody underneath the age of probably 35. But in the olden days, you had to settle or reconcile your bank accounts because you couldn't do it on a computer, and so you had to look at your deposits and look at, I remember my mom when I was a little boy looking at the deposits and when we grew up, there's a lot of those deposits in, in, in my dad's account. That was not true. <laughs> but we look at the deposits, look at the withdrawals, balancing them, seeing, okay, I wrote these three checks, I made these withdrawals, I pay, these days I paid these bills electronically, right? And making sure that it reconciles. Okay, I've got X dollars over here on the left and I've got X dollars over here on the right because if you have two different numbers you have a problem, right? These days you can just do it electronically and look at it and you can keep track of where you are and, and it's easy to do. So that's what, I'm, what I meant by the fact that over the last 15 years or so it's not, we don't use the word reconcile maybe as much but I like what David said the idea of balancing something. So it says here in verse 20 that by Jesus... He came to reconcile or to win over to friendliness or to settle or to balance things for us, to bring us over and make sure everything was okay. The whole idea of reconciliation. Think about reconciliation in a relationship. Maybe you've got two friends who are uh, not agreeing with one another. And a third party comes in to reconcile them. Say, okay, let's, let's talk about our differences and let's work through this. And you reconcile, you balance, you settle it. You win them over to friendliness. And I thought that was kind
2: of interesting uh, to point out. We were, yes, David. So back, back when we did reconcile our checkbooks with the bank, you know, the bank would occasionally make an error usually the error was on our side. Sure. So there would be this divergence between what was right and what was wrong. Right. And here Jesus says, he, by him to reconcile all things to himself. To himself. Yes. He's the standard. Absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. And then the other thing
0: that I thought was interesting there in, the, in, in verse twenty twenty one, is that we were once aliens or once enemies Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 19 is a verse that you're probably familiar with uh, at least when you hear it if in this life only we have hope in Christ we are of all men the most pitiable Uh, the idea being that if this is where we place our flag plant our flag we are going to be disappointed because we are enemies and aliens. we This world is not our home. We're just a passing through, as we sing, right? Because we're focused on something else. But I underline the word were because we were once aliens. We're not anymore. We've been reconciled. We've been transferred. We've been conveyed over. Um, the other interesting thing, moving to our next slide here, uh, is... We were enemies in your mind because of what? Verse 21? Because of wicked works. Uh, by wicked works, yet now reconciled. So we've already answered these questions, but I think it's important to, to address the two questions. Who is guilty of the wicked works? Not Jesus. Not somebody else. I'm guilty. We're guilty. We're guilty of the wicked works. Who is it that does the reconciling? Not the preacher, not the elders, not a friend, not the preacher on TV. Jesus Christ reconciles. That's how powerful he is. So now you come back to where we began last week. The most Christ-centered epistle of the New Testament, arguably, is all about Jesus the anointed, the, the Christ, the chosen one. Um, and then he, I like outlining things. I like looking at lists of things. Reconciliation results in a number of things, but three things here. Reconciliation involves three things, uh, and I'm looking particularly at uh, verses, I guess, twenty one, twenty two. What is it that reconciliation results in? Number one, being holy. And we talk about being holy uh, quite a bit. David did a sermon on sanctification a few weeks ago, and I did a sermon where I talked about the idea of being saints uh, and what that means and how we are separate from the world. We are reserved for God and separated for God. We are holy. What's the second thing there? Blameless, right? What does it mean to be blameless? Does that mean you're without sin? No, because we know that that's an impossibility based on Romans 3. What does it mean to be blameless? Forgiven. Forgiven, yeah. You take the blame and you less the blame, right? You remove the blame. And then the third thing, at least in the uh, New King James Version, is what? Above reproach. So when we are reconciled, When we are brought back to a friendly relationship with God, we are made to be holy, made to be blameless, and above reproach. And again, I like the NIV here, is the idea of free from accusation. Whenever I think about blamelessness or above reproach, I think about qualifications of elders or characteristics of elders because that's one of the things that Paul specifically mentions. Granted, we all... Are trying to be blameless. We are all trying to be above reproach. But you want those who are serving as shepherds to be above reproach, free from accusation. You can't say anything bad about them. Not that they're perfect, but that they have achieved and are working towards a level of spiritual maturity where when someone accuses them of doing wrong, you say, mm-hmm. No, that just doesn't sound like him. That's that's what you want the reaction to be, as opposed to, yeah, he was doing it wrong. Yeah, that makes sense. You don't you don't want that in, in in our lives as Christians. When someone accuses you of doing wrong, we want people in the world, hopefully, but particularly brethren, to say, no, that's that's not like him. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. Um, and then the key word. And I talked about this a little bit last week because of verse 3, I'm sorry, verse 5 is the word if. Uh, That's the key word. So let's talk about the key word if for just a second here. Um, Verse 5, which we studied last week, says, A hope which is laid up for you in heaven of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. And then I'm a big ellipsis, dot, dot, dot. And then verse 23 starts out with one word, and that's the word if. It's one of the most consequential words in the New Testament. Uh, some of the most consequential words of the New Testament are two and three letters. If, but, then, four letters. I get that. Um, but if, if we do four things, what are the four things we need to do? Here would be an, a, a good invitation talk. What are the four things we need to do? If we do what? Continue in faith. That means we've got to start in the faith, right? So we've got to continue in the faith. What's the second thing? We are stable or grounded. Third, that we are steadfast. And what's the fourth thing? Kind of similar to steadfast, but it's got a little bit of a different flavor to it. What's the fourth thing? Not moved away. away. So think about going back to Philippians chapter 1 which we talked about uh, um, seven weeks ago, I guess it was, six weeks ago. I am appointed for the what of the gospel, Paul said. Defense. It's, you, Paul was like a defensive lineman. You can, and someone that was like, I'm not being moved. I am going to defend the gospel. I'm going to stand for the truth. You are not going to move me from this spot. So continue the faith grounded, steadfast, not moved. And then, again, 23b, which says, Preach to every creature under heaven, is, to me, reminiscent of verse 6, as it has also been preached to all the world. Okay, anything else before we move on to the last uh, five or six verses of chapter? Yes, Brother Brian here, David.
2: And we'll go ahead and read verses 24 through 29. I love that that imagery of the ledger book I'm thinking about the debits and the credits balancing out. But
1: I think what's so wonderful about about this section is that it points out that there's no there's no credit that we could input on our behalf. There's no income that we could earn that would be able to balance out the debit that we have incurred through those wicked works. It, it is truly all through him Absolutely. that comes in and blots out that debit and truly and that's the only way to
0: reconcile it. Good. What do you do for a living? (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. Thank you, Brian, for that. I appreciate that.
1: Yeah, Brother John. I was just thinking about this being reconciled through Christ. Of course, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, it's sin that separated us from God in the first place. And through Christ, that sin is forgiven. Mm -hmm. So that brings us back into agreement. And all that answers verse 12 where it says, he has qualified us to share in the inheritance How did he qualify us to share that inheritance? By forgiveness, bringing us back into agreement with God.
0: Excellent. Very good. Great comments. Appreciate that. All right, let's look at the last paragraph of what we call chapter one. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. There it is again, the body church of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which was given to me uh, for you to fulfill the word of God. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations but now has been revealed to his saints. To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles which is in Christ in you uh, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every Man, perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end, I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. A lot of stuff in there. So let's spend uh, just a couple minutes on that. Uh, He says in verse 24, he says, I now rejoice. In Philippians, the word rejoice was used seven, eight, nine times, depending on the version you're reading from. The only time Paul uses the word rejoice is here in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Not that he wasn't a rejoicing character in Colossians as he was in Philippians, but it's the only time he uses the term here. He says, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings, and we're not going to take the time to actually go back and read. But First Peter four sixteen is one of those three instances where the word Christian is used. If anyone suffers, let him suffer as a Christian. Matthew five verse twelve is also the tag to the final beatitude: Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. Persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. And then he says, for his sake. Um, whose sake was he suffering for? Not his own, but for Jesus Christ. Again, it goes back to him. If you want to uh, go through an exercise and then realize that you've run out your highlighter, use a highlighter to highlight every his or him in the book of Colossians. And you'll probably have to get two highlighters because you'll run out of ink. Because that's what the letter is about. Uh, verse 25, I thought that was interesting. It's the second time here by my count. That he's used the term minister. Verse 23, he says, I became a minister. Verse 25, I became a minister. What is a minister by definition? A servant. servant. Very good. I looked up the word in a literal Greek to English and it used the word servant. Um, Also came across the word steward or stewardship as well. And we know what a steward is. It's someone who has been given responsibility to serve on behalf of someone else. And we are serving on behalf of Jesus the Christ. Very good. Excellent. And then verse 26, he talks about the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations. As an aside, If someone says, let's talk about the mystery of Jesus Christ, what book and what chapter are they most likely going to be referring to? I heard someone say Ephesians Ephesians 3. Ephesians 3 is all about that mystery of the gospel message being preached to all people, which had been kind of hidden. That's what a mystery is. But now there's a revelation, a complete teaching wherein all people, regardless of their backgrounds, can be saved through Jesus the Christ because it has been, that's the phrase he uses here, revealed to the saints. Very, very good. All right, then verses 27, 28, and 29, and then we'll do some quick applications in our final uh, eight or nine minutes here. Uh, Verse 27 of the text says to them God willed to make it known. Anybody have something different from God willed? Chose. Chose, yeah. That's one of the versions. Uh, I came across uh, one of them where it said, pleased to make known. So God chooses, you. when you choose to do something, the idea is, is it's voluntary. It is your choice It is something that you want to do, something that you are pleased to do. So God was pleased to make this message, this mystery, known to all men. No one was forcing God to do that. And because of his love for us, he wanted to do that. And it was, again, as he points out here and as Ephesians 3 talks about in great detail... Uh, a mystery among the Gentiles. Something they were searching about. But Romans 1 verse 16 says that the gospel is the power unto salvation for all that believe for the Jew first but also for the Gentile or for the Greek. The other thing that I wanted to point out here in verse 27 is which is in Christ in you the hope of glory. Christ in you and the hope of glory. I thought that was a really neat phrase. Hope of glory. Anything on verses 13 through 27 before we wrap up with our last two verses here? Alright. Let's look at verse 28 and 29. Him, there it is again, him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. So I thought about that. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Uh, That's kind of a nice, concise way of summarizing what preaching Christ involves. It involves two verbs, at least in verse 28. Uh, What are the two verbs in verse 28? Proclaiming and warning. warning. So the New King James uses the word warning and teaching. So when we preach in a public service, situation like this, we are warning and we are teaching. When we teach someone in our own homes or we are um, sitting in their office and we're having a conversation with them and we're trying to promote spiritual conversation and talk about the Bible, we are warning and we are teaching. I would go so far as to say that One of the things with modern preaching that is wrong is that there's an awful lot of teaching or or let me rephrase that. There's some teaching, but we don't like doing a lot of warning. We have to make sure that we teach and that we warn. Because and and the reason that we are sometimes reluctant to do that is because I don't want to be Nicholas the negative or Debbie the Downer I don't want to be uh, the person that says well you can't do that we have to be responsible for teaching others and like we've said repeatedly in our study of Philippians and in sermons we'd rather someone be upset with us in this life and spend eternity in heaven than be upset with us on the day of judgment for not sharing with them the message in the first place so that's why I thought that was important. And the objective of preaching, what's the objective of, of preaching? Is to perfect man in Christ Jesus, to make us complete and perfect and whole in the name of Jesus Christ. Reminds me in many ways of, he, of another passage where he says, for the equipping of the saints. What are we, we equipped to do what? Equipped to be perfect and to be whole. All right. Then verse 29, uh, and we'll wrap up here in our final five minutes here. Verse 29, Paul had a clear objective in his labor. He says, this is the end to which I also labor, striving according to his working which works in me mightily. What does it mean to strive? Work for it, put forth effort, uh, I don't, I don't, there are certain things I don't strive for, things that are easy and things that are simple, but something that requires effort, whether that be a manual job that requires a lot of sweat equity, maybe you're writing a sermon and you're really working hard at it, trying to figure out the right things to say, maybe you are trying to find the right words to use to encourage someone and, you, and you're working really hard at that. Uh, The NIV uses the word strenuously. So, something that strains you is something that pushes you. And so we strive. And then he says, It works in me mightily. Anybody have a different word than mightily? Or mightily? In verse 29. The NIV uses the word powerfully. So, it's a powerful concept. All right. Uh, anything else on the text before we spend just a couple of moments looking at our applications? We always want to do a walk away with something. All right. I came up with four big applications, which go back to what we've talked about um, in our study. And, we, and, we, and there's more applications than just these four, and we've already talked about some of those. But number one... Given the fact that Jesus is the image of God, we should be the image of him. Remember where Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ? That's what we want. We want others to look at us and say, you look an awful lot like Jesus Christ. Well, that would be the greatest compliment you could ever pay a person. You talk like him. You walk like him. You you act like him. You react like him. That's what we want from others. Number two... Going back to the fact that there is only one head, we should never be ashamed of the fact that Jesus is the head and what that means. Uh, This goes to the heart of our men's studies that we just completed about a month or so ago where we were talking about there being one head, so we have to have authority for what we're doing. We have to make sure that we aren't involved in the kinds of things that uh, are easy to, to kind of fall into but that we don't want to be involved in. Number three, if means that we should constantly work towards perfection in Christ. That word if in verse 23, I think it's very, very important in Colossians 1. And then lastly, preaching, as we talked about just a moment or so ago, should involve warning and teaching. And that's for all of us to do. That's not just David's responsibility or my responsibility or a group of elders' responsibility or the church collectively. That's the responsibility of all of us. Is to teach and to warn.
2: Um, in, our, in our efforts. Anything in our final 20 seconds. Yes David. Regarding number one there. It, it uh, reminded me. Uh, you know a lot of times the struggles we go through in life. Uh, refine us. Mm-hmm. Just as gold or silver. Is refined. And I read a story one time. Where it said a silversmith was asked. Uh, as he's refining the silver, you know, how do you know when it's done? How do you know when it's refined? And he said, when I can see my reflection in it. Oh, that's neat. That's great.
0: All right, we'll end there. Next week, if you would, uh, read the uh, 23 verses, which uh, comprise chapter two, and we'll uh, have that discussion next week. Thank you all.